So Ephesians 4, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. So we're in the middle of a series. We're halfway done a series called Discipleship 101. This has been a really exciting series for me to preach. It's been an exciting series for me to prepare. And it is off the beaten path of where we have been as a church. We've been going through a lot of narrative, haven't we? We've done the Gospel of John. That took two and a half years. Then we went into Acts, which is another narrative following the Gospel of uh, John. And we're really establishing who Christ is and what the church is. I mean, we are a young church, and so those are two important questions, right? Who's Jesus? What's the church about? If we don't get that, we're going to go way off course. And so that's why I'm prioritizing those narratives. But we've had to also take breaks to visit different topics and different um, doctrines and scenarios within the Christian faith. And as I said in our opening week, it's a little bit overwhelming as a minister of the word because you really have infinite number of lifetimes worth of material and study to share with a church. And you think, how can I possibly convey the Christian faith to our people? And the answer is one week at a time, one step at a time. And so, but it also asks of me that I would with wisdom seek out, mm, what does our church need right now? Is there something like, is there a deficiency in any place and how can we address it with God's word? And so that's why we're in Ephesians chapter four. Because if a church, here's, what, here's the bottom line. If a church cannot define a disciple, it will never ever make one. If the church cannot define what a disciple of Christ is, it will never make one. We know that the great commission was to go and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, said Christ. And so that's our job. We need to make disciples within, in our midst. We also need to make disciples from the lost around us. But if we cannot 
accurately and faithfully describe a disciple to a lost person, they will never become one. It's, it's logically impossible. Likewise, those of us who might have been following Christ for a lifetime, will we become what Christ has called us to be if we do not understand the picture of and what a disciple really is? And it's very easy on our part in our culture to compare ourselves to movable things, compare ourselves to other Christians, compare ourselves to other churches, compare ourselves to our brothers or our friends or pastors and say, well, if I'm relatively doing well compared to them, then I must be fine. But the Bible gives us no such comfort. In fact, the driving force behind this special series is right here in Ephesians 4. Paul says to the church, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's it right there. Paul says to the believers, I urge you to walk in a way that reflects what you believe. In the manner worthy of the calling, worthy of the calling means the gospel. To understand the gospel, to understand redemption, as Cameron noted, Ephesians says we've been granted everything in Christ Jesus. We've been granted his promises. So that's the reality. That's the calling. But the the issue is, do we walk that way? Do our lives reflect that? Does it demand moral perfection? No. Do we expect to attain a sinless existence? Of course not. But it doesn't mean that Paul doesn't urge us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And so put in sort of more uh, plain speak, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Marie Kondo. I couldn't remember her name at the time. She does that declutter show. And this is kind of like what we're doing in our lives. It's to say, If you follow Christ, if you belong to him, and if you understand your salvation and your freedom, then you ought to evaluate your life. Marie Kondo says, you know, don't keep something unless it sparks joy in you. And I think that's totally a lame assessment of what's important in your life uh, because it fails to recognize how feeble we are. But the Christian equivalent is to say, in evaluating my life and understanding the gospel, are there parts of my life that are totally incongruent and contradictory to what I say I believe? That's it, right? When we go through our spiritual closet and say, this does absolutely not fit with where Christ is taking me. Or this thing here that I have forgotten or that I have paid very little attention to, I need to prize more, clean it off, sort it out. That's to walk in a manner worthy. It's to change how we're walking. The Christian life is not trapped up here in our minds, right? It's not just right confession. It's right living. And so knowing what a disciple is and what they do is key to becoming a disciple of Christ, both in how we teach people and how we live ourselves. Here's what's really jumped out at me in this series so far. That walking as a disciple, don't laugh when I say this, but walking as a disciple has a surprising amount to do with other disciples. It has a surprising amount to do with the local church. One of the things I'm trying to undo in our minds if we hold these assumptions is that being a disciple is really about growing in Bible knowledge and becoming more holy personally. And I've said this every week that many of us have held a definition of discipleship as I need to grow in my knowledge and I need to become more personally holy. And that is sort of the all-encompassing, that's how I define my success as a disciple. The problem with that, though, is that you can do that all by yourself, right? Especially today when 
you know, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, you had to go to the, the gospel hall to hear the Word of God, to hear it preached. I mean, now you've got it in your pocket. I've got 300 sermons on my iPhone as we speak. I literally listen constantly to God's Word being preached to me. And, and in terms of holiness, I can pray, I can confess, I can discipline myself, and I can renew my mind so that I walk in greater holiness. And I can do that all on my own without Shannon even noticing. Hopefully she does. But I can, I can grow in those ways and have nothing to do with any of you. That's the fundamental problem with that definition of discipleship. That's a flawed definition because it fails to see what Paul calls us to, and I covered in our first week, which is to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. So essentially that shatters the thought that we can be disciples on our own. Because that first exhortation in terms of discipleship is to bear with one another. It would be much easier to live as a church if we didn't have to bump into each other constantly, right? But it's part of discipleship. It's part of exalting Christ because what he has made us is a body. He hasn't made us a scattered, um, atomic, you know, individualistic missionaries. He has made us into a body with many parts. So walking as a disciple has a surprising amount to do with the local church. And so this is what I want to do as a church is to say, hey, do we understand what discipleship is? Are we defining it as belonging to the local church? I want to stress and emphasize that yes, it does. And this has been my driving mantra I would say in the last year that this is where we need to grow in as a church. That church life, the Christian life, really orbits around that local church. As much as you may like or dislike your local church, your Christian life orbits around that. And we pray that God sanctifies and grows his local church where we are deficient. This is not an excuse for lousy leadership or lousy practice, but it is a call to say your Christian life is truly centered on the body of Christ because that is where he is, right? He is the head of his body. And so today's message really comes down to, as a disciple, we looked at the culture of togetherness. Then we looked at the uniqueness of each disciple because of the victory that Christ won, giving gifts to men. It says, but to each he gave grace. In other words, we are one, but we are also unique. To each one of us, Christ gave grace because he, in his authority, has given gifts for us to use and administer his authority. So those were our first two weeks. And if you haven't heard them, I would encourage you to go back and hear those. They're on our website. They're on our podcast on, uh, at Evergreen Chapel. You can search in iTunes if that's of interest to you. But this week really comes down to the disciples' relationship with these first gifts that Paul mentions. We, we looked at these last week. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so this week really comes down to how does, this, how does a disciple of Christ relate to these first primary gifts? We know that there are many more gifts in the church, but these are mentioned primarily and out in front of Paul's discussion of the church and the gifts that are given. And so we do need to recognize there is something unique about them. 
This is not to say that other gifts are less important. But as I said before, if God first gave a whole bunch of administrators to the church, you, you likely would not have seen the spread of the gospel, right? Administrators who are gifted in details and organizing would have nothing to organize if the church was not growing, right? If disciples were not being made. And so we see the apostles as church planters, as authoritative church planters who had the message of, of Christ. We see the prophets who went and preached the word when there were no scriptures other than the Old Testament. We had uh, prophetic utterances in order to guide the church in this new covenant. We had evangelists who I said, they were like the runners with the message. They would take the apostolic message and they would go. They would just run. They would push it as far as they could. And then we had shepherds and teachers, which is kind of where I land, which they are the stay-at-home gifts to the church. When the message has been planted and the disciples have been um, at least confessed and baptized into the church, then you have the shepherds and the teachers who stay and they pass on doctrine and they pass on the Christian life and they walk with the sheep. They don't go anywhere quickly. While the apostles, as I said, are gone, the evangelists are gone. It's the shepherds and the teachers who are staying in those unique uh, expressions of the church. And so how do we relate to these gifts? And we're going to see that in verses 12, and 14, 12, 13, and 14 this morning. Our outline is as follows. There's three sections this text covers for us. Number one, disciples draw from this. So this is you. If you're a disciple, this is you. A disciple of Christ draws from and submits to the public gifts in the church. These are what I'm calling the public gifts because they are more visible. And again, this is not to say there's other parts in Scripture that say, does the mouth say to the hand, I have no need for you? No, this is not to place greater honor on these gifts, but it is to say they are mentioned, they are public. And so these are sort of the visible gifts in the church. And we need to recognize and understand how do we relate to them. So number one, we draw from and we submit to the public gifts in the church. Number two, disciples labor in and for the church. Disciples labor in and for the church. That's number two. And number three, disciples become collectively mature in Christ and stable in the truth. And I hope you're taking these each week because I'm putting these out so that you have a helpful way of kind of triggering your mind. Yeah, I can hand you one, Wendy, if you're excited about that. I just want to remind you that those are there. And I'm going to keep one up here um, so that I know that I'm answering these. But these are really to help you. And if you have kids who have um, sort of come out of uh, Sunday school and want to follow along in the sermon with some helpful notes, that's, that's what those are there for. So let's get right into the text. Number one, disciples, discipleship calls you into a trainee relationship with these public gifts. That's a, that's a rewording of my first point. Disciples draw from and submit to the public gifts in the church. In other words, discipleship, which is your active following of Christ, calls you into a trainee relationship to these public gifts. Have you ever been to Tim Hortons and you see on somebody's name tag it says trainee? That means go easy on me if I'm slow at the cash or if I get your order wrong. I'm training. I'm learning. I have not been here very long. That's what a trainee is. It ends in E-E. It's not a trainer, it's a trainee. One being trained. So discipleship calls you and me into a trainee relationship to these gifts. That is to say, 
How do you think of the pastor or the shepherd in the church? How do you think about these gifts? How do you think about the teaching and proclaiming of God's word? What is their role in your life? Some of us may think, well, the pastor's job is to make sure that I am not offended. The pastor's job is to make sure that all of my demands have been met. The pastor's job is not to make any factual errors. My job related to the pastor is to make sure uh, that his sermon is accurate and has done the job it was supposed to have done. Some people think that the, the sermon is there to sort of meet some standard that you may have or other people may have. And this is not at all to say that the sermon should not be of utmost clarity and truth according to God's word. But my question is, as a disciple, how do you relate to the preaching of God's word? Paul says right here that these gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the shepherd and the pastor and the teacher, the gifts that we're sort of focused on in this uh, stage in the new covenant here, the purpose of those gifts is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's verse 12. Now this word equipped is really, there's three sections to this trainee relationship. Number one is that we are to be equipped. Equipped. That word in the Greek means to to fully furnish. To fully furnish. And you know, when you buy or move into a house, you want to make sure every room is furnished. Paul says to Timothy that, that when you take the word of God, it is, it is useful to make you fully furnished for every good work. So when the pastor says, golly, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Paul says the word of God is going to fully furnish me to do my work as a pastor. It also says that my gift to you, my preaching of God's word to you is to make you fully furnished, fully equipped, fully prepared. The word also can mean perfecting. To perfect you toward some task, toward some goal. It is to move you from one stage to another, from an empty house with maybe just wallpaper to a house fully furnished with dining accessories and, and lounging accessories and food accessories and the whole, uh, the whole furnishing of a home so that when people come in, they are comfortable no matter where they are. In other words, if you are that house, you are being prepared for every way that God is going to use you in his kingdom. It's to be equipped. Now remember that our perfecting, our being equipped being prepared for this task is in the context. There's a context around this, right? This is not just you in the gym pumping iron, just, just increasing your max lift. It's important to be personally disciplined, but the context here is that we are being prepped together for that which we have come to believe together. I'm going to say that again. The context of our equipping or furnishing is that we are being prepared together for that which we have come to believe together. It's not a 24-hour gym, as I said, where you clock in at 2 in the morning because that's when you're good. As I said, all personal discipline is worthwhile. It's good. It is good to pursue Christ and to lean on Him and to draw deeper into your relationship with Him in every way that you can. 
as you sit, as you stand, as you rise, as you work, as you run. All very valuable and precious. But the context here for the church is that he gave these gifts to the church. He gave these gifts so that those who have come to believe together would now be furnished together to to achieve this goal. As I said before, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for training in righteousness. Now this word training, that's what that's all about. I think the bottom line there is that it's very difficult to cultivate obedience and fruitfulness without training. So the question is, are you being trained? Are you being trained? Do you see yourself as a, tr- as a Christian in training? Training, walking, pursuing a goal. Pursuing a goal. Now, who is they? This is, the, this is important. He uses the word saints to equip the saints. He doesn't say to equip the disciples. You're saying, well, isn't that what we're talking about? Yes, discipleship involves understanding your designation as a saint. So who are they? These gifts are given to the church to equip, that's to be fully furnished, who? The saints. Who are the saints? Now, now many of us may just think like, oh, that's so nice. They're, they're, he's calling us sort of this holy group, this sort of, um, we sort of walk one foot off the ground. We never touch the ground with our feet as we move for, through this earth. And saints, especially because um, I think Catholic culture has really uh, influenced a lot of what people think about Christianity, People become saints after they die. It's their heavenly designation. That's not at all what Paul is saying. The word saint actually pertains uh, to and designates a thing as set aside for service to God. It does mean holy, absolutely. But it designates a thing set aside for service to God. In the Old Testament, uh, in, in the worship ordinances, so the altar and the bowls and the cups, and the altar, all of those things were, were said to have been sanctified. Like, well, how do you sanctify a bowl? It means you set it aside. This is the bowl that we use for incense, for worship. This altar is for worship. It is set aside only to God. It is set aside only to God. The exact same word here, saint, the same Greek root word is used in Matthew 24 when Jesus is talking about the end times and he says when you see the abomination of the of desolation standing in the holy place the holy place is that same word here translated saints in other words it it's an it's an earthly thing or place set aside for God so what does that make us that makes us people here and now set aside for God's purposes And so we know that part of the Christian life is to lay down our previous, you know, know, our self, our self-driven aspirations, our self-driven dreams and goals are set aside for Christ. We become saints set aside for his purposes. Well, what are his purposes? To advance his kingdom, to advance his kingdom, to advance his kingdom, to advance his kingdom. Those are the purposes of Christ. So who are they? They are saints, which Here's the, here's the contrast that we need to make in our minds. It is much less a heavenly word as an earthly designation. It describes the grinders, the Christian grinders, who are, who are set aside for God's purposes, not pursuing comfort for its own sake, not pursuing leisure for its own sake, but seeking Christ and suffering for that which he's called us to. A saint is set aside for God. 
That doesn't mean quit your job. But we're going to talk about that in just a minute. That doesn't mean quit your job so that you can be useful to God. No, no, no. What is this thing that he has set us aside for? Ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. The work. What's the work? What kind of work are we called to? Ministry. Now, whoa, that's a super loaded word. Because immediately people think of ministry as me, somebody who gets paid to preach, somebody who gets paid to be a missionary, somebody who gets paid to be an elder, somebody who gets paid to be a music leader. Oh, that's ministry. People will say, oh, are you called to the ministry? Answer, yes. You are all called to the ministry. Absolutely. Answer, yes. Those, those public gifts that people typically think of as ministry, oh, shepherds, pastors, they are in ministry. We are just lowly people in the secular world. Absolutely not. Scripture gives us no divide. In fact, my job is to equip you to do the work of ministry, which in some senses, you are more in ministry than me. My job is to equip you for ministry. Well, what is, what is ministry then? How do we understand ministry? It means to conduct. Okay, this is not going to be so, especially the teachers are going to be like, you cannot define the word using the word. But it's hard not to. It's the ministerial function of the church. We talked about how in the Canadian government there are ministers of finance, ministers of Aboriginal affairs, ministers of transportation. That, the prime, and then there's the prime minister. That is to carry out the affairs of the, of the portfolio that you've been given. It's to advance the cause of the portfolio that you've been given. So if you are in Aboriginal affairs, your mandate, your portfolio says, work toward reconciliation. That's the government's mandate in that portfolio. Minister of defense is to advance the interests of your portfolio. So in defense, that may be peacekeeping, that may be certain conflicts. That, that is our mandate, to advance that portfolio. What is the portfolio of the church? What are we ministers of in the church? We are ministers of the kingdom of of Jesus Christ, of God. And so we advance the interests of our portfolio. So as ministers in the church, we conduct the ministerial function of the church, which is to what? Make disciples, to preach the gospel, to advance the kingdom. So that's you and me, brother and sister. That's all of us. We are all ministers of the gospel within the church. Now, the, the, the church is the context here. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry it's to make the church do what the church is supposed to be. It's to make the church the church. Now, does Christ make his church? Yes. We are not the builders of his church. But we are ministers of the portfolio and of the interests of that church. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar of the truth. Matthew 5.14, the, the church is, this, is a city on a hill. James 1.27, the church is a shelter for the orphan and the widow. The church is all of these things. So if we are ministers in the church, wherever our gifts are most suited, we are doing the things that make the church distinctly the church. Which is why if we are spending our time making the church look like the world, we are not doing ministry. If we are trying to import as much of the world's understanding of life into the church as we can in order to win the world, we are not doing Christian ministry. 
Our job is to make the church look like the church. And increasingly, that is going to look weirder and weirder and weirder. Our job as ministers of the gospel is to make the church the church, regardless of how much that contrasts with the world around us. And in fact, as we may lament the increase and the, the advancement of deranged forms of sin, the acceptance of sin in our culture, we must also understand the opportunity to shine as that brighter light, as a city on a hill, as a lamp in darkness. And so as Christians, as when we serve together, many of you serve with me, when we have prayer meetings or ministry planning meetings, we are not sitting around going, what's popular right now? What can we do to sort of put, give us that cultural edge at our church? That is a waste of Christians' time. The world already has that stuff. They do it very well. We conduct the interest and the portfolio of the church, which is the advance of the kingdom of God through the preaching of his word to disciple people in his understanding. So what's the whole point of this? Is that the sermon is not the point of our gathering. It is, it is the central element of our gathering. You say, well, that's kind of weird because we spend literally half our time in the sermon. That's not because I think I'm important. It's because I understand that this gift is given to equip you. It's to endow you with courage and understanding in your gifts in Christ. So that as you leave, you are that much more full of, of the truth and empowered by the Spirit to do that which you're called to do. We're all growing in that. It doesn't mean, as I you know, was saying last week, it's not like I can go out and I can just, I can convert somebody on command. I'm a preacher. I can just do, I can just boom. It's not like that. As we use our gifts in the marketplace, there is always a degree of growth and of struggle and of figuring out how that goes and practice. But we gather every single week to hear from God's word so that we might be sharpened to a greater degree, empowered to a greater degree, and even excited to a greater degree. That's why I get excited about preaching because to me, I always see the ideal. I always see, the, I always see it working in my mind to this full great extent. And we work together towards this. So that was really last week's sermon, in fact. If you want to go back and listen to that, it was, it was truly focused on that reality that if we don't understand the reality of the gospel, we're never going to use our gifts. Because our gifts are rooted in the freedom that Christ won and the authority that he won on the cross. And so there's this whole redemptive narrative that we have to understand in this historic context of the atonement. That was last week. And so that's number one. Disciples submit to and draw from the public gifts in the church. Number two, disciples do this work in the church. In the church. Now, I was just talking about going out and using our gifts, but listen to how the text goes because that's important. But where do our gifts begin? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, second half of verse 12, for building up the body of Christ. So where do your gifts begin? Where does your Christian ministry begin? It begins in the body of Christ. As I said, that is very hard to do if you are not a part of the body of Christ. If, if you are not attached to and in and amongst the body of Christ, knowing each other, loving each other, showing one another hospitality, exhorting and encouraging one another, praying for one another, if you're not doing any of that you're going to have a hard time following 
the Christian standard for discipleship. Because the gifts begin in the body. They begin right here in the body of Christ. And again, that's not, that's not the universal body of Christ. Because you're, you're, you are not really building up the body of Christ in China right now. By our prayers, we certainly are encouraging them and we are asking for God's protection or whatever that is. But certainly, understanding in the first century, Paul is talking about your peeps right around you. Pardon my slang. But it's us. It's you and me right here in Smith Falls, Kentville, wherever we come from here. This is the body that we're called to use our gifts in. Now, what is the verb that he uses? These gifts are given to the saints, those set apart for God, to build up the body of Christ. This is an unmistakable metaphor in the Greek language that Paul is using. It's an unmistakable metaphor. It's an architectural metaphor, exactly as it's translating, translated, build up. Build up the body of Christ. It's the metaphor for the work that we are doing. It's to construct a building. It is to build it up from the foundations to the doors to the walls to every part of its circulation system, to every window, to every vent, right out to its edifice. Now, I love this because it's an architectural metaphor, which means, and I, and I love this, and I think about this. We talked about Notre Dame a few weeks ago, how it, when it had burned, it was such a significant cultural moment because it begs the question, why would such a building be built? What would somebody have to believe about the world in order to build a cathedral like Notre Dame? Again, should we be building you know, glorious buildings? Is, is that what God wants from us? No. But those who do build buildings, what does what they build say about what they believe? In other words, buildings speak to the worldview of its architect. And one of the great things about cathedrals is that when you walked in, the ceiling was so high. That was not just to see how high they could build. Some of you might have been a mason or you've worked with building materials and it's like, you feel this like, how high can we build this? How thick can we build this? That's not what they had in mind. It's that when you would walk into a cathedral, you felt small so that you had a, at least a spatial sense of how big and great God is. Now, is God sitting at the top of that roof looking down saying, oh, I wish they had built this just a little bit bigger? No, God is not contained in our architecture. But when Paul speaks of an architectural metaphor, he says, this is what you're doing in the church. In other words, how you're building should furnish and, and house and host its contents. So if we are the household of God, we are building in such a way so that the people of God can exist inside of it, which is why we need to bear with one another because if you are not willing to bear with somebody, you're making it difficult for them to live in the household of God, right? If people feel unforgiven, if they feel like uh, they are brushed to the side, if they feel like they're not taken seriously or cared for, we are not building up that body because we're saying, here, you stay in this room where there are no couches and no water fountain. You'll be fine, right? That's what it's like when we're not exercising our gifts and when we're not bearing with one another. We're saying, you're welcome in the house, but you get this crummy corner where it's not comfortable at all. So we need to build our household in such a way that everybody who follows Christ, no matter how difficult they may be or whatever baggage they may have, they can be there. They have a seat at the table. They are sitting on a couch among us that we are dining together. That's the reality there. And then there's also the idea of an edifice, which is the outward um, picture of who we are. 
Again, 1 Timothy says that we are a pillar of the truth in the world. We are a buttress. That's a, that's a visible architectural element that we are upholding the truth so that when the world looks at us, they do not see some muddled version of themselves that when uh, us in some lame way trying to win them. They see the edifice of truth. They see the transformational realities behind what we say we preach and what we say we believe. So we are a walking, talking, architectural testimony to who Christ is and how we live together. It's to demonstrate something outward about our purpose. And so your ministry in the church should be just that, to strengthen and welcome those who exist inside and also to demonstrate the outward reality, to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So we do this work inside the body. The effect is plural. That's the second part of this part of the verse. The effect is plural. Look at verse thing, uh, 13. Until what? Until you get mature? Until you get to the place? No. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. True discipleship must pry us from our individualistic reasoning with Christ. It has to pry us away from our me, how am I doing? Who am I? Am I growing? Those are important questions. But discipleship really asks, how are we doing? Are we as a body of Christ growing in our proclamation of the truth? Are we growing in maturity? Are we growing in our witness? Are we growing in our stability and our maturity? How are we doing? That's the question. So again, discipleship doesn't even just ask, how am I doing with the Lord? And that is an important question. You cannot hide behind a good godly family and say, well, I'm glad they're doing well because I have no relationship with Christ, but at least I'm here. That doesn't work either. Don't hear me saying that. But the mature Christian is asking, how are we doing? Are we growing in maturity? The mature Christian is coming and saying, I want to run with them. I want to be among them, using my gifts with them so that we are growing. It's a sad reality when somebody who thinks they're mature looks on somebody who's immature or struggling and saying, you know, they're holding us back. This church would be so much better if those just immature people would leave. Imagine how strong we would be then. That's, that's a pathetic existence of the church. That is antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to ecclesiology. Scripture says when one weeps, we all weep. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We go through life together. We work together in this mission as the church. Just to make the record clear on that. So the effect is plural. We build up the body. Number three, maturity is the goal. What are we working towards? And of the knowledge until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now this does not exclude ladies. Okay, just to make that clear, this is manhood as in the expression of who mankind is, to mature manhood. Some translations say the, a perfect man, till we grow up to be a perfect man. Again, that is not to exclude women, but it's to say we as a body are growing into something, one thing, the perfect man. And again, the reflection here is the Son of God. Who is the standard? Who is the perfect man? Whose image are we striving to conform ourselves to? Not that one great elder that you love. But Jesus Christ. 
He is the perfect man. He is the expression of mature manhood. Because look at this, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the standard? What's our measuring rod? What's our metric for maturity? To the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. This is so key, friends, for the church. This is so key. This is where ministry really strives to be. Maturity. 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 What, what God is striving to accomplish in His church is first maturity. And it begins inside the church. It begins here. Without the onlooking of the world, as we gather before God together using our gifts, what is, what is God accomplishing among us? It's maturity. That He would form in us mature manhood, mature personhood in Christ. That we as an expression would, again, not, not ultimately perfect, not ultimately sinful, but the context shows that we would be relative to our nature, relative to our created status, that we would grow into the full function of what God has created us for. Again, not that we would be morally perfect, but that we would be functioning just as God has made us to function. As a body full of maturity, full of the knowledge. Look at the, st- look at the contents. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the contents which fills and fuels our maturity. We do not shy away from preaching the knowledge of Christ. The, the worst is when people say, oh, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes proud. So we want to stand up here and pretend we don't know anything. No. We strive to be enriched with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what is that knowledge ought to produce? Unity in faith. The knowledge that makes prideful is the knowledge that says, I can measure my knowledge against your knowledge. That's not Christian. Paul says true Christian knowledge brings us to mature manhood together and unity in faith. So may your knowledge of Christ flourish. May it deepen for God's glory. Now, I just want to make a brief aside, a very brief aside, and I'm wrapping up shortly, a brief aside about where we are at as a church on this subject of maturity. And it has to do with vision. It has to do with values. What are we doing as a church? As a church planter, I am often told by my mentors and coaches, if you do not articulate what your church is about, you will struggle to garner unity in what you are doing. Now, of course, we're making disciples. Uh, you know, of course, we are preaching God's word, but, but what does that actually mean? What, relative to, to the universe, what are we doing? And I, I'm going to speak on these at, at greater length at, in some, at some time, closer to the fall probably, but I think what we have come down to, and I think what we have determined, and I, this, this comes from us. It's not from my brain. This is me evaluating who we are. Our first two values as a church are biblical literacy, go figure, and Christian culture. Now, I, again, that, that might throw you off. Like, well, what do you mean Christian culture? Interchange the word community, but again, community is such a buzz. It's such a cliche buzzword. Everyone's just, everything's about community, right? What does that mean? Our second value is really this, being together. It's corporate worship, Christian culture, Christian community, being together, relating to one another. Those are our first two values, biblical literacy and Christian community, which is this. 
this plus, right? Not just this, but this plus. Those two things center on the principle that kingdom advancement begins first in the church. That's where I'm going with this. Kingdom advancement, our ministry of the church, our let's go spread the gospel, let's make disciples, let's transform the world around us with the message of Christ begins first in the church. And what I'm going to lay out is that our first two values center on church renewal and our second two values center on uh, cultural reformation. In other words, the actual doing, the, the fruition, the making of disciples, the preaching of the gospel. Those, so, so our first two values are renewal here, revival here. Our second two values center on renewal out there. And so we're going to visit all of that, but I just wanted to give you a bit of a context in terms of the thinking of where our church is going. But this is the reality that maturity inside the church is foundational to carrying out the ministry of the church. We need to value and, and, and cherish maturity and pursue it as a, not as an end into itself, but as, but as an expression of the fullness of Christ. That as we are full of Christ and his knowledge and unity in his faith, that will express itself as maturity. This is my final point. Maturity or stability, put it this way, the proof of maturity is stability. How does maturity express itself? Verse 14, so that, this is the evidence of maturity, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul outlines two types of destabilizing forces here. Two types. Number one is waves. Number two is doctrine. That we may no longer be children tossed about to and fro by waves. You can picture to and fro, this really this back and forth by waves coming in and out, right? A tide coming in and out. I think this really speaks to just natural occurrences in the world or, or in our lives. We see Christ calming the waves of the sea that are a picture of Christ's lordship over creation. So these waves really demonstrate and, and picture for us the natural challenges uh, that the Christian or the person faces. And this is obviously reality in, in all of our lives, right? We lose loved ones. We're dramatically disappointed by the outcome of certain things. We see people walk away from the faith. You know, we, we lose uh, immense, um, immensely important possessions. Whatever they are, we are no longer tossed to and fro. We are not so dramatically carried about by whatever changes around us. Now, he says, no, no longer be a child. Now, this doesn't contradict when Jesus said, you know, you, you must enter the kingdom like a child. Being a child is a very good thing when it comes to accepting Christ. That we don't stand there in judgment over Christ and say, well, well what can he do for me? Or how can he prove this to me? We're encouraged and exhorted to have childlike faith in accepting Christ. But Paul says we, we, we can't remain children. There's another scripture that says you need to be as innocent as a dove. In other words, have childlike innocence, but be as shrewd as a serpent. In other words, don't be naive. 
Don't be naive. Don't, don't maintain that you don't need to know or understand anything because you have this childlike faith. Being a child is a good thing in terms of entering the church, entering the kingdom of God, but that initial stage must give way to growth and maturity and wisdom. We expect it of our earthly children, don't we? Sometimes we get a little too excited. We get a little too, oh, I can't believe they're not walking. They're already 11 months old. All right, they, they will. You know, we pray for maturity and we know that it comes at different stages in children. Different abilities and gifts and motor skills come at different times and so it is with us. But nonetheless, there needs to be this growth, this progression, this sort of advancing from one glory to another glory, it says in 2 Corinthians 3. Hebrews 6, 1 also says, let us leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity. Now, this can be really misinterpreted as in you know, the essentials of the gospel become no longer important. You know, once, once we know them, we can move on. We don't need to talk about atonement or faith anymore. But this is spoken to a people who kind of accept and receive Christ and then they just, they just, they just stay there. They just have no interest in learning or growing in holiness or in doctrine or in understanding of greater things uh, within scriptures. It's not to leave it behind but it's to stay, don't just come in and be like, wow, this is so great, and then, and then truly stay this immature Christian. Because again, we all begin Christianity as children. We all start there. We all start there. Nobody enters as a, as a scholar and as a preacher in the Christian church. We all begin as children. So that's fine. That's wonderful. But that we may no, be no longer tossed to and fro. And that is, how do you gain maturity? Again, what's the context? You belong to the church. So if you're somebody or if you know somebody who as a Christian constantly struggling with coping with the difficulties of life, constantly disappointed in other people, constantly bemoaning the things in life that do not go their way and, and constantly living under like God's hand is so heavy upon me I cannot believe and they're just they live in this total despair they are tossed to and fro but they don't belong to the church they're not actively involved and, and invested in and building up the church that's where the problem is you remain a child when you are not in the context of the local church you do it doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how little TV you watch or how spiritually disciplined you may be. You are a spiritual child if you have not grown into this body of Christ. So tell your friends because you're already here. But that's the reality that becoming a mature Christian necessitates involvement in the local church. Some people can't stand being around the church because they think they are too mature for them. That, that just that does not compute in the Bible. I, I read on Twitter last night that an immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. Those are realities that get really helped out when you live in the local church, when you abide your life with other believers. Those two things, they go away real quick. Hard to please, easy to offend. What is maturity? It is growing in ingratiation with your fellow believers in Christ. Now, what, again, what's the proof? So you're not tossed to and fro by the waves? Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. 
come on, you can mourn, you can grieve, it's difficult, but you're stable. Now what's the other one? Doctrine. Doctrine. That we would not be carried off. That's what that word in the Greek means. That we would not be carried off by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. That introduces to us the reality that the church will always be subject to changing doctrine, new doctrines, new interpretations, new ways of following Christ. You ever heard books like Time Magazine, like the hidden something of Jesus or all this stuff coming up that like we know the way to Christ. No, do not be carried off by new doctrine. Our doctrine's old. It's super old. It's not changing and it's not about to change. And the, the proof of maturity is that a church is not off chasing every wind of doctrine, every new interpretation of what it means to be a Christian. Go back to the old ways. Walk the old paths. Preach the old gospel. And so that's one of the great marks of maturity. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a conservation of what is true. The church by nature has a conservative pull to it in terms of we conserve what has been handed to us. We conserve it and preserve it so that we'll be a hit, able to hand it off to the next generation undistorted. Now, that again, I am not elevating my ability to conserve and preserve. We do that together. I am, I am a tadpole in the ocean of great ministry. I, I am nothing. But may we as a church preserve and cherish the truth as revealed in the Scriptures What's our conclusion? I have two points in conclusion. One is a cultural observation. One is an exhortation for the church. In our culture, which I, I think right now, rapidly, the acceleration of this is rapid. It, it's so adrift in humanistic dogmas and this sort of emerging secular religion. The church is going to increasingly be the only institution left which has a form of being grounded, which has a form of timelessness to it. Literally now, institutions are reinventing themselves in order to distance themselves from any relationship to the past. Now, I'm not saying the Christian church is all about the good old days. That's not what it is. We're moving into a glorious future. But what the world needs from us is a timeless institution, is an institution that says, this is the way God is. He will not change. We may fail. We may mess up. But we are doing our best to reflect the God who does not change. And so even more so now when it is less popular, we need to proclaim in love the truth of the unchanging rules and realities of God's kingdom. More and more so in an unstable and shifting culture, the church has to be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about. We do not have that privilege we do not have that freedom. And the exhortation to the church is that what a sad irony it is when the church wants to reach the culture by becoming like the culture. What is maturity? It is unity in the faith and maturity in Christ. It is growth in Christ, doubling down on our historic faith and creating the culture that we hope to see around us. Again, it begins in the church. We want to see cultural transformation. We need to first become the city that we pray Smith Falls becomes. We are first that city of God praying and hoping that, that we see the influence like Levin go out to our lost 
brothers and sisters and friends around us. That's the exhortation. That's discipleship growing into maturity and how maturity looks. Let me close in prayer and we do have a final song.